Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app and most podcast platforms. He's Paul Dettino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we'll discuss some of the latest headlines connected to the Giants and across the NFL. Later on, we'll discuss how the Giants' defense will be tested this season and some developments in college football that the NFL may be watching closely. We'll also answer several of your submitted questions, so stay tuned for that. But we start by continuing our opponent team previews. The Giants will visit the Baltimore Ravens on December 27th in Week 16. Last season, Baltimore posted the best record in the NFL at 14-2, but fell to Tennessee in the divisional round. To break down the Ravens and what to expect from them in 2020, we are now joined by a man who played wide receiver in the league for 10 seasons, including three with the Ravens, helping Baltimore beat the Giants to win Super Bowl 35. He now serves as a Ravens analyst for WJZ in Baltimore, none other than Kadri Ismael. Kadri, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dettino here on Giants.com, Big Blue Kickoff Live. Greatly appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Yeah, I appreciate you guys having me on, and I love, love, love every time I've done anything radio-wise, TV-wise, media-wise, and the introduction is Super Bowl champion, Super Bowl 35 champion, 34-7, New York Giants go down and defeat. Because, with that said, y'all got however many Super Bowl championships, however, <laughs> without fail, Giant fans remember, oh God, oh, oh, the Ravens game, oh, it just, oh, it was awful. <laughs> All right, that set everybody up for Eli to come in for Michael Strahan and the NASCAR defensive front to stop that ass of Tom Brady and company, and y'all wouldn't have got the two other Super Bowls from the Patriots had it not been for the 34-7 whooping. So, therefore, I feel like there are three Super Bowl championships tangentially I was a part of, <laughs> and I feel good about it. That is one way to put things in perspective. <laughs> it's really interesting, for sure. <laughs> Well, speaking of trying to win a Super Bowl, clearly the Ravens came very close last season, disappointing finish to their season, but the team comes back pretty much in full force. And let's start with the quarterback position, Kadri, because it goes without saying Lamar Jackson, very impressive in 2019, his first full season as the starter, won MVP. My big question is, Kadri, how much credit does Greg Roman the offensive coordinator deserve in terms of really helping Lamar Jackson get comfortable within that scheme and tailoring it to all of his strengths? So when I look at Lamar, and I, I, I think when you have a, a quarterback unique like him, you have to have the head coach recognize his skill set and then, yes, bring in a coordinator the likes of Greg Roman that can really develop said skill set and have everyone buy into it. And so I think with Joe Flacco, when he was still the the quarterback for the Ravens, they draft Lamar, they kind of, you know, tucked in, if you will, as the running game coordinator, Greg Roman. And I think that allowed for him to kind of see the landscape. And when Lamar took over for an injured Joe Flacco, it was a smooth transition, and then you saw what you saw last year, which was you know, Lamar Jackson having an MVP-type season, Greg Roman being named Offensive uh, Coach of the Year, and the rest was history. A, a historic season, uh, NFL-wise, as far as running the ball, but just you know the way in which the offense was just humming along. I thought that uh, the symbiotic relationship between coordinator and quarterback was clear and evident. You know, the Ravens had won 12 in a row until that playoff loss to Tennessee. And I guess what I want to ask you, aside from the turnovers, and my goodness, they had four of them in that game, and, and that'll short-circuit anybody. Is there anything that the Titans showed the rest of the league after the Ravens had run rough shot over everybody that may be usable this year to try to thwart them? I think what we saw was a team that made some big plays got up on a Ravens ball club that was used to, once it got into the red zone, it scored, period, end of discussion. It was used to um, holding on to the ball and 
putting so much pressure on the opposing team's uh, defense and offense because of the fact that you're talking sustaining 10, 12 play drives, chewing up clock. And so when the Titans got up on the Ravens, the Ravens had to kind of throw that game plan out the window. The ball control went to an air attack trying to manufacture big plays. Did they have some big plays in the air? Sure. But they weren't able to finish. And I think by the time it was, I think it was 21-7, it was one of those things where you had to just say, hey, let's play catch-up. And they were never able to get back into the, the swing of things. So I think if you look at it from a defensive coordinator standpoint, trying to game plan for the Ravens, I think he's going to go over to the meeting room and the offensive coordinator be like, hey, man, listen, here's the deal. If y'all can get up on Ravens defense, uh, that's going to help us out. Thank you very much. And then he just walks away and continues the game plan uh, to try to stop Lamar Jackson. I think that's basically what you're you're looking at. Your offense has to get so many points ahead that it takes Greg Roman out of his game planning. Which makes sense so that the Ravens then would have to play catch-up throughout the course of the contest. And the reason why they didn't have to do that, Kadri, for the majority of last season was because you had to account for Lamar Jackson. And then you also had to account for a nice one-two punch in the backfield in Mark Ingram and Gus Edwards. But interestingly, they just drafted J.K. Dobbins to add another intriguing weapon in the backfield. I'm curious, how do you see things playing out in terms of the rushing attack this season, knowing that they've just added another dynamic option? So I think, you know, if you recognize Eric DaCosta, what he likes to do is get as many playmakers as possible. Um, I think Ozzy loved the, the idea of when he was general manager to get as many defensive playmakers as possible, and Ozzy, you know, was ph- phenomenal in, in picking out, you know, all the likes of Ray Lewis and Ed Reed, uh, Ring of Honor guys like a Haloti Nada, uh, potential Hall of Famer, and, and Terrell Suggs, and so forth. But with Eric, I think the way in which he sees the vision of the offense, um, you know, Dobbins is just another tremendous cog to this juggernaut um, and, and how can he you know fit in is by competing and making other guys around him better and other guys pushing him to uh, to, to say hey look you know if you want playing time you're gonna have to play better than me I think those are good problems to have and I'm sure again you know if you're Greg Roman it, it's about well you know how do I uh, appease uh, a running back room well if again you're I don't know, Gus Edwards, I'm, I'm, you know, turning out, you know, 50 yards on, on a drive, and I got a hot hand, you know, I'm, I'm going to my coordinator, like, yo, man, keep me in now, come on, I got, I got the hot hand. But if you're Mark Ingram, of course, you too are going to be wanting to be motivated and, and, and not being the, the odd man out or the old man in the group, if you will. So there's a lot of interplay there of in that running back room, but I think the cool thing about it you know, you're not going to get a guy that is going to be banged up. You're going to have some fresh legs, you know, come the playoff push. More fresh legs in the backfield, Cardi, uh, but at the same time, Lamar Jackson ran for 1,200 yards last year. I would, I would think, now this is just me, I would not want him running for 1,200 yards again this year. I think I'd want that number and those touches to come way down, especially considering the talent that they will now have with him in the backfield and understanding that the interior of the offensive line seems to be somewhat of a weak spot. We know that Yanda's retired and, and that can't make them feel very good. Yeah, I think the competition now for Marjorie's position is, is going to be an interesting one. Um, I think at the same time, when you look at you know, what they are trying to accomplish you know, with the running game, yes, it is a multiple attack look. So it's not like you're running inside zone specifically. It's not like you're running, you know, power offense uh, specifically. It's not like you're running outside zone specifically. You you got a variety of different looks, a lot of counteraction, a lot of misdirection. Yes, you got some G power in there, although Marshall Yonda was the lead catalyst for, you know, G power type of running game. But with that said, um, you're right. I, I, I personally don't want to see a Lamar Jackson, uh, a 1,200-yard rusher. 
you know, I want to see him, um, you know, four thousand yard passer, you know, with you know three other running backs in the backfield, one at nine ninety, the other at you know eleven hundred, and uh, one is you know looking at you know thirteen yard thirteen hundred yard rushing. My God, you know that that that's saying that Mark Andrews at tight end is doing his thing, but also you know the outside lanes of the receiving core has stepped up and, and played extremely well. So. You know, those are some of the things that I'm looking at. You know, what are the next steps for this offense? It's Lamar Jackson getting the outside lanes of the passing attack going and taking some of the quote unquote pressure off of his skill set as a runner, if you will. We're talking with former Ravens wide receiver Kadri Ismael. Helped them win the Super Bowl following the 2000 season over the Giants. Also serves as an analyst on WJZ in Baltimore. And speaking of the receiving core, Kadri. We saw what Hollywood Brown did last year and a number of positive flashes, a young guy that they could build on moving forward. But who do you see outside of Hollywood Brown that perhaps can emerge this season and provide maybe more of a one-two punch for Lamar Jackson through the air outside, of course, of the tight ends? Yeah, uh, Miles Boykin has to, to be the next guy up. Um, you know what? You, you drafted two receivers this year. They're supposed to be explosive, blah, blah, blah. All I know is rookie receiver, it's extremely difficult to you know, pop into the league. There are not that many Randy Mosses that just come in and, and, and you know, rip up the NFL, quote, unquote. You have to have a scenario where uh, Miles Boykin has to take that next step. I think he can take that next step. Um, he showed flashes of it. Can he be consistent? Uh, it's going to be interesting because of the way, you know, there's not going to be that preseason for him to kind of get in his groove with, you know, the, the games that we've seen or the offseason. But I will say this, it's just one of those scenarios where ultimately you're going to have a, a competition um, that is going to be healthy for him and to show that he can be a, a dependable threat. I think Hollywood Brown, at the same time, um, has to be that, you know, 1,400-yard guy, um, 11 touchdown, you know, stretch the defense kind of a, a player. Um, if he can be, which I, I, I see, you know, from his training uh, that he's posted up, that he more than can do that, um, that his foot is fine, and that, you know, speed kills. And with, you know, again, the attention on the running game, you're going to have a lot of one-on-one -on -one opportunities to stretch the defense and put pressure on, you know, a cornerback on the outside. Now, all of a sudden, you're sticking them to the outside, you're going to the post, and then the safety's like, but I was looking at the running game. <laughs> and next thing you know, you're getting another 70-yard touchdown pass because Lamar does such an amazing job of play-action pass. Where do you think the one-two punch at tight end between Andrews and Boyle fits in this year? After last year, between the two of them, they, they caught nearly 100 balls. Well, you know, I think with Mark Andrews, um, he did such an amazing job in his first two seasons that they traded Hayden Hurst. Hayden Hurst was drafted before him. Hayden had a screw in his foot, so that kind of you know slowed him down dramatically. Um, and so he he kind of had to sit on the bench. But you know, I remember uh, Jack Del Rio when he and I were Minnesota Viking teammates. Um, you know, I, I was like, wow, my hamstring's a little sore. I, you know, I didn't necessarily take off for practice, but I was. In the uh, cold tub getting some treatment, he kind of walks in there with his veteran self, and he's like, hey, man, how you feeling? But no, Jack, I'm all right. I'm good. You know, I'm just going to get some treatment. Hey, all I know is, can't make the club in the tub. And so he kind of just went on out and to the uh, main locker room, and I kind of stuck with my mind from that point forward. And I think for Aiden Nurse, he's going to do phenomenal down in Atlanta for sure, but you can't make the club in the tub. In other words... For him, it was a Wally Pitt situation because Mark Andrews just blossomed in the go-to threat for Lamar Jackson. I mean, they just hit it off. Now, you know, uh, Boyles, he does an amazing job as a blocker. He, yes, is a viable threat, but Mark Andrews, make no mistake about it, he's, he's, he's a, the number one option in the passing attack uh, inside and outside. I think... Um, you know, that's where, you know, Lamar likes to go. Um, and defenses know that. And, and, and they also recognize he's extremely difficult to, uh, to match up with.
Kadri, I want to switch gears over to the defensive side of the ball. And I think statistically, when you look at Baltimore last season, the one number that at least jumps out to me is the fact that they blitzed on about 55% of their plays, which was by far number one in the NFL. And I think part of the reason was because maybe they weren't too confident in all of their personnel up front winning the one-on-one -on -one battles, clearly. What do you think has changed this offseason that maybe Don Martindale doesn't have to blitz so heavily, or do you not see the scheme changing that much? So when you look at the Ravens' defense and the defensive coordinators that have been over the last decade or so, and you just saw how incredibly dominant they were, um, the one thing that sticks out, no matter the coordinator, is um, we hit you in the mouth, and they get guys that totally buy in right away with hitting you in the mouth. Um, I think Wink, for his aggressiveness and what he likes to do, um, you look at not necessarily I'm just going to blitz for the sake of blitzing, but he had a secondary that could withstand you know, being out on an island, and I think that's something that um, you know, John Harbaugh had been preaching about for years. Uh, he would always be, you know, frustrated when they would come playoff time and they would face, say, a New England Patriots team and, you know, Julian Edelman is, you know, getting behind the defense and, uh, you know, Gronkowski is doing his thing or, you know, you, you, you're just in situations where, you know, the, the Steelers, you know, Antonio Brown is, you know, making life you know, difficult for you and, you know, making game-winning catches. So I think, you know, the fact that he felt like, hey, I got a uh, secondary that, in my opinion, you know, is top to bottom the best secondary last year. And I believe with uh, uh, some guys coming back healthy, with Jimmy Smith resigning as well, um, they're going to be arguably, again, depth-wise, the number one secondary in all the league, and I think that's where Wink Martindale starts uh, the conversation. And then it goes to what he is working with up front, the fact that you got Matt Judon back um, anchoring on the outside. Um, that, to me, is going to be where you're going to see the biggest difference. And, oh, yeah, that's right, Calais Campbell. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go ahead and just go ahead and, and, and just crown him already because Calais Campbell is a man amongst men and holy mother of pearl does he not fit what a Raven defense is all about because interior it was good but he is a definite upgrade and I think Brandon Williams is going to love playing with the likes of Calais Campbell um, I think it's going to be reminiscent of the defense where you had Haloti Nada and Terrell Suggs on one side of the defense. You would have an overload on the, say, away from the, uh, no, to the tight end side, you would have an overload. And then you would have Haloti Nada and Terrell Suggs. So do you fan the back towards them? Or do you have the back go to the overload? If you have a one-on-one, -on -one, well, basically you're screwed because Haloti Nada is unblockable in the interior, <laughs> and Jerome Suggs is going to make mincemeat out of your tackle. Go ahead, roll the dice, see what happens. I think that's what Calais can bring to the table. I've got a question about an X-Factor pass rusher, uh, Quadri, because Jalen Ferguson comes out of Louisiana Tech last year, and I remember at the Combine talking to a lot of people about him. He had great production in college. Of course, they, they took him in the third round, and there was a lot of mixed reviews. Some people thought, wow, with that kind of production, how can you pass up on him? And then there were others who said, ah, you know what, I don't think it's going to translate well to the NFL. How much of an X factor can he be for their pass rush, or are they even counting on him to do that? You know, I, I think one thing what makes this defense so unique, it's the mental game and the mental assignments and, and everybody doing their job extremely well to the point where um, if, you, if you have an ounce of doubt, you're out. And so I think for Ferguson and the rest of the young guys, even you know, uh, Patrick McQueen, a linebacker, but 
Um, even before I even say Patrick Queen, let me even back up to last year's middle linebacking core because even the linebackers and Ferguson and the outside of Matt Judon, you just had a, a, a group that was just okay. And so with that, yeah, okay, you got to know your assignment and you got to play with reckless abandon. And I, I guess, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm like, yeah, okay, you know, show me, show, show me what you can do, then I'll talk about you. You mentioned that this arguably could be the best secondary in the NFL, and I think very few would disagree with your sentiments because of the veterans they have back there, the playmakers they have back there, and the continuity. And that brings me, Kadri, to a big-picture perspective. The fact that this Ravens defense really is coming back with the exception of adding a few new guys such as Calais Campbell and Patrick Queen, who you mentioned, how much does that bode well for them in an offseason where there's not much work on the field and we have no idea what the preseason is going to look like or whether or not training camp is going to run smoothly? So I think, you know, what John Harbaugh has done every single year has been kind of a blueprint of how you should be as a coach uh, in this new age of coaching. You know, the the rah-rah, do what I say um, kind of coaching style doesn't fit. you you got to have relationships. you got to be able to, you know, navigate a young player's mentality. And at the same time, you know, you 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 got to be tough. you got to, you know, like, look, this is – this is the expectation. If you can't do it, we got to find somebody else who can. But in that finding somebody else who can, I gave you every opportunity from the way I have put together my training staff, the way I put together my strength and conditioning staff, the way I put together my recovery staff, the way I put together the your position coach, your you know the coordinators. I leave no stone unturned, giving you the best chance to be successful. You know, so I think with that said, this is going to, you know, test him and every other coach in the league on the mental game and how physically you can help the guys be in a position to win when the season or if the season happens. I'm curious about uh, Earl Thomas, who, when he left Seattle, you know, they balked about giving him the kind of money that he wanted, uh, thinking that maybe as, uh, you know, he gets over 30 years old, uh, the body might not be able to hold up. He might not be able to play the game that he wants to play anymore, as as his style of game, so to speak. What what do you see for him going forward? Uh, was Seattle right to be worried about a physical decline in his skills? Um. Yes. Uh, I've seen it before where veterans, you know, you get to a certain stature, you get to a certain pain, uh, and for the lead, you validate yourself via your pay. Other guys know that there's a validation via your pay. But then there's also, how do you look at it from the standpoint of, okay, what do we see in the future? You know, and if there is that tick up progression, then like a Bill Belichick, you, you get rid of the guy before it becomes an issue. So sometimes you got to get rid of him the year before, and so be it. I think with Earl, he did a, a really good job um, in, in being a, a very strong-minded leader um, for the Ravens, and at the same time, um, yeah, that Titans game, it sticks out in my mind. I'm sure it sticks out in a lot of guys' mind. Uh, he didn't have such a great game, and I think that, you know, that – Hopefully, whatever he is dealing with in the offseason, that that can be handled. But um, as his play on the field, I think he's looking to kind of redeem himself. Kadri, last one for me as we move to special teams here. I think when you think about the Ravens, everybody talks about, obviously, their dynamic offense and the continuity on defense, the intimidation factor that you talked about. It's easy to overlook. Now, Baltimore may boast one of the best one-two punches in terms of punter and kicker. How much of an asset is that for this team as it looks to get over the hurdle and try to get back to the Super Bowl and win it this year, similar to what the Chiefs and the Seahawks, as you were talking with Earl Thomas before, who are those other teams that just fell short the previous season and now they're trying to return to form and maybe special teams could actually wind up being an X-factor there. 
So you have a luxury in Sam Cooke and Justin Tucker. Um, that that is just you know something that you can just you know you, you count on. You count on. Oh, we need the ball to be kicked inside the ten. Bad, bro. You know, use whatever variety of kicks. I think he has something like 30, 40 different ways to punt the ball. Um, you know, at the same time, when it comes to cold weather, windy weather, rain weather, inside, uh, outside, from 50, from 55, uh, you know, extra point, um, you name it, you got Justin Tucker. And so that being said, you know, those guys, they call themselves the Wolf, the wolf Pack, uh, because Sam is actually the holder as well. And literally, uh, you just have continuity. And I know as John Harbaugh being the head coach, he feels really good when he just looks over and be like, yep, we're going to punt it, and I'm not worried about it. Yep, we're going to go ahead and kick it, I'm not worried about it. Those are luxuries that not many teams uh, can, can boast about. Final one for me, I mean, I think we all pretty much believe that this team should win the division. The AFC North is really theirs for the taking. But I'm curious to how you feel about them compared to the rest of the AFC. Do, do you see them as the AFC favorite to go to the Super Bowl? Well, everyone has been jumping up and down saying how, yes, they are the favorite and this is an unbeatable team and all that. Um I throw caution to the wind because I think the expectations are there. You know, last year it was, was like, oh, wow, okay, well, you know, you did it against Miami. Oh, wow, oh, you you went on that 12-game run. Um, but you, you, you just didn't get it done against Tennessee. So, you know, I, I like to say, you know, come in with an edge rather than come in and, and be the, the media darlings, if you will. How do you handle that level of uh, success? And how do you have an encore? I think, um, you know, Lamar really seems like he's one of those guys that like to be hungry, stay hungry, and achieve uh, a ton of success. So I'm hoping that he, he does what he does. You know, again, there's other guys that, you know, we talked about. There's some guys that are going to be wanting contracts. There's some guys like a Calais Campbell that's hungry to, uh, you know, put that, that, uh, that ring on it and have an amazing, you know, exclamation point to a, a, a strong career. Um, you know, there, there are a lot of guys that, that are going to be, you know, wanting to take those next steps. So, you know, there's a, a champion over in Kansas City that you, you can't overlook. And I think there's a half a billion reasons why you just can't <laughs> sit back and have <laughs> Yeah, well said with that new deal that Patrick Mahomes just got. But the bottom line is two young dynamic QBs in the AFC – between Mahomes and Lamar Jackson certainly will be fun to watch moving forward. He is Kadri Ismael, former Ravens wideout who helped Baltimore beat the Giants in Super Bowl 35. He now serves as a Ravens analyst for WJZ in Baltimore. Kadri, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Look forward to speaking to you down the road and hope you and yours continue to stay safe and healthy. Thanks again. Great stuff. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. Appreciate you having me on. Tangentially, you guys have two more Super Bowls because of your defeat. Carry on. <laughs> Thanks again to former NFL wide receiver, Ravens analyst for WJZ-TV in Baltimore, Kadri Ismael, for being kind enough to break down what to expect from the Ravens this season. And let's get into our perspective, Paul, of what to expect from Baltimore this season. And I think from most of the interviews that we've had so far previewing the Giants' opponents, I would say you know this one stands out to me maybe more so than the others in terms of continuity. While you have to look at the fact that Marshall Yonda... Their top Pro Bowl guard has retired, and the fact that you know they've lost maybe a weapon or two on defense. For the most part, the unit that had a stellar season in 2019 is returning, and I think that bodes very well for a young quarterback like Lamar Jackson, and it bodes very well for both coordinators who are returning too because we've been talking about this all along, Paul, with not much on-field work. We don't know how training camp and the preseason are going to play out. You know, this is a season where I want to know, hey, most of the guys that we're bringing back pretty much already have a feel for one another, and I do think for the most part Baltimore does fall under that umbrella. Well, considering that they were 14-2 and two last year, and Jackson has now started for a year and a half, and if you look at his overall record of 19-3, and three, uh, you would say that the Ravens have really figured out 
how it is that they need to win football games. Now, the question becomes, as you go into the 2020 season, have teams finally figured out, as I asked uh, the missile, uh, you know, did they see something in what Tennessee did? Has somebody finally shown some type of blueprint that can short-circuit this team? You are correct. They've got a lot of continuity, and they've had a lot of success to go with that continuity. Remember, Lance, it's not just about, hey, we're bringing most of the guys back. It's about most of those guys won a lot of games. (laughs) Indeed. And you're certainly not going to complain about that. Now, you asked an interesting question to Kadri in terms of what did Tennessee show the rest of the league about what you may need to do against Baltimore to have a legitimate shot. And I think he brought up an excellent point. If anybody remembers that playoff game, Baltimore barely had to play from behind all season long. Well, Tennessee forced them to play from behind. If memory serves me correct, I think Tennessee took a two-touchdown lead in the blink of an eye, and everybody's like, what the hell's going on here? And then all of a sudden, Lamar's got to throw, throw, throw. And not to say that he's not a good thrower. It's the bottom line. You become more predictable and you can't rely on the running game. But the other thing that I think Tennessee showed is the fact that the Ravens struggled to stop the run from a defensive perspective, Paul. And that's why it shouldn't surprise anybody They went out and got Calais Campbell, not just because he has a knack for getting after the quarterback, but they wanted to beef up that front group and say, hey, if you want to find crevices and holes to run through, we're not going to make it so easy for you. So I think that was probably the biggest move this offseason, getting Calais Campbell from Jacksonville and Paul only surrendering a fifth-round pick for somebody that may be in his mid-30s, but I think still is playing at an extremely high level. Yes, uh, 34 years old, I believe, by by the time opening day rolls around. Look, I I get the fact that it was only a fifth-round choice because, A, he's got a high salary, B, he is on the other side of 30, and Jacksonville was obviously looking to, to do some house cleaning. Absolutely. Okay, that's fine. I get all of that. But, my goodness, you mean to tell me there was nobody else around the league that wanted to get into trade conversations for this guy, that the Ravens, who are already a very solid and strong contender, were able to add a Pro Bowl caliber player like that overnight for only a fifth-round pick. I still can't believe when I heard that trade was made, Lance, and I don't know if you felt the same as I did, I just shook my head and I said, are you serious? Why? How did that happen? I said the same thing. Because you're always looking at a trade in terms of value. And more often than not, I would say in the NFL, trades do tend to balance out when it's all said and done. And maybe that is going to take place depending on what happens with Jacksonville in terms of how they utilize their assets. But in the immediacy of this... To say that you're going to add that type of a playmaker to a defense that, as I mentioned, is in desperate need to make sure that they clog up the one hole, which is stopping the run, and this is a Super Bowl contender right now, home run for the Baltimore Ravens. And the fact that, as I mentioned in the interview, that's why they had the luxury, I would argue, Paul, to take J.K. Dobbins in the second round, because most people, when that pick was made, they said to themselves, oh, wait a minute, hold on. The Ravens have Mark Ingram, and they've got Gus Edwards. And both of those guys were great compliments to one another. They had arguably one of the best rushing attacks in the NFL opposite San Francisco in the NFC. Why would you want to use a relatively high pick on a running back when you could maybe get depth or fill other needs? And I think the rationale, first of all, is Ingram's getting up there in age. Edwards is going to be a free agent after this season. Mm -hmm. The more and more you think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense that they took Dobbins. But getting back to my initial point, the rich continue to get richer, Paul, because you can never have enough depth as we talk about in any position. And I think Dobbins is going to be a key ingredient in the short receiving game. So just when you're worried about Ingram and Edwards pounding up the gut or off the edge, Lamar could easily dump it off to Dobbins and he could pick up 25 yards off a short catch. Well, Dobbins didn't do a ton of pass catching at Ohio State. You know, this is a guy who was a real workhorse in the backfield running the football, did not necessarily catch a ton of passes. I mean, he was a target. Don't get me wrong. Has the capability is what I'm inferring. Yeah. I I don't think there's any doubt that he's got the hands to handle it. But, uh, you know, I, I do think that, you know, they primarily drafted him to take some pressure off the other guys in the run game. And, and as, you know, Crowder said, 
there's no doubt in my mind that as much as Jackson was was running wild over the rest of the NFL last year, it is not a great recipe for him to be taking 170 rushes a season. You know, I mean, to me, I I would be very, very, very leery if he was a significant part of the running game moving forward. Now, is he going to be part of it because of, as he says, their counteraction and their, their, their moving pocket and all the kinds of stuff that he does? Sure. So if he winds up taking off, I don't know, 100 times because it's either a bit of a design or because he's just doing things with his athletic ability, that's great. But I, I really believe they should start discouraging him a little bit from, from taking that ball down and running with it. When you've got the kind of, of pop that they've got now at the running back position, it doesn't make sense for Jackson to be taking too many more chances with the ball. I agree with you. And with all the weapons that are around him, I'm sure that that's probably the direction that they're going to go towards. And I think Greg Roman, who's a polished offensive coordinator, he's worked with a lot of mobile quarterbacks. Listen, sure. he realizes, Paul, why do I want to expose my quarterback to multiple hits? Also, in an offseason where he hasn't had much on-field work, it all, to me, sets up perfectly for them to alleviate his workload as a runner and allow him to continue to develop as a passer. So I think this actually sets up very nice and bodes very well for Lamar Jackson to continue to mature from under center. Now, in terms of the rushing attack, I want to take this a step further because now we have previewed, Paul, every single AFC North opponent who the Giants are going to face this season, and that is clearly the AFC division they're colliding with. I think from a big-picture perspective, the more and more I break down these rosters in my head, this is going to be a hell of a test for this Giants rushing defense this season when they go up against the AFC North. Just think about this, Paul. We <laughs> talked about the three guys in Baltimore's backfield, yeah. okay? Cincinnati's Keep got going. Joe Mixon. Mixon okay? And Chubb. Keep going. Cleveland, you mentioned Chubb. Okay, let's not forget Kareem Hunt, the former yes. Kansas City Chief. And then yes. Pittsburgh has James Conner. So yes. you are not getting a break, Paul, no, no matter who you go up against in this division. I, there's no question about it, which is one of the reasons why you have to feel at least kind of uh, I don't I don't want to say at ease okay you can't feel at ease with the type of running back threats that their opponents are going to throw at them but with the fact that the Giants defense clearly has its strength in the front line yeah you can feel a little bit better about being able to compete because you know that Lawrence and Hill and Tomlinson and Leonard Williams they, these guys up front Okay, and and I don't want to I don't want to besmirch Johnson either, who by the way is coming over from Tennessee and is really a plugger uh, in the middle of that line too. He, I, I think he's going to help them at the defensive tackle rotation spot. Uh, I I do think that that gives the Giants at least some place to start when they try to game plan against these rushing attacks. I think that's a great point because we were even asked on a previous program, I think it was the one that Jeff and I did earlier this week, Paul, somebody wrote in a question about which is the strongest facet of the Giants' defense, and we responded the same way you did, talking about the guys up front specifically. So you figure when you're going up against the North, you have some depth, some muscle, meat and potatoes, as I like to call it, to throw in the mix against all of these dynamic running backs. And you say to yourself, okay, well, Lamar, beat us with your arm. Ben, let's see how healthy you are. Baker, let's see whether or not you bounce back from 18. And Joe Burrow, let's see how you can handle that dynamic passing attack in Cincinnati. That's how I want to go into those matchups with the AFC North this season. I don't want to make it easy for these quarterbacks to say that, hey, we're just going to pound the ball against the Giants, and I'm not going to have to throw much, and we're just going to milk the clock and run up the lead. I think if you're the Giants, you want to go down and say, hey— if the quarterbacks beat us with their arms and this guy had to throw 350 to 400 yards, so be it. But we know at least we're not going to leave those stadiums feeling James Conner gashed us for 150 yards and Baltimore ran for almost 200 yards, which is what those guys did more often than not against the opposition last season. Well, it seems to me that when you look at the Giants and, and what they do well and what they still don't know if they do well, you're you're 100% right, Lance. I mean, there's no question. You want teams to have to lean on their quarterbacks in that situation because uh, you, they haven't proven that they could do 
you know, what, what needs to be done. But here's what I will say, okay? If you're the Giants, you've got a couple of ways you could go into one of those games. You could say, okay, we're going to come out real quick on offense and we're going to attack, 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 and try to get up on them early, which is what the Tennessee Titans did to the Ravens in the playoffs. Yep. Okay. You could do that. Or you could say, you know what? We feel so good about our running game. We feel so good about our rebuilt offensive line. We feel so good about Saquon Barkley and whoever else they're going to hand the ball to. You could also go on these 10 and 11 and 12 play drives and do what you know the Parcells Giants did to the Bills in Super Bowl 25 and say, okay, instead of just coming out with a bunch of quick lightning strikes and getting up on them, maybe we'll just try to beat down on their defense and control the clock and do what we can to keep our defense off the field. You could really use either one of those and make sense out of, on a given Sunday, one of those plans is probably going to be the preferred course of action. Well, and that's what we've talked about also in previous seasons. Hey, let your offense alleviate the defense, Paul, which is exactly what you're talking about. Which is what Jason Garrett did with the Cowboys yeah. for, for a number of years. Of course. Whether it was DeMarco Murray or Ezekiel Elliott, the goal was we're going to pound the football. 2014, they did it with DeMarco Murray. He had an outstanding season and then wound up signing with the Eagles because there was a question about durability and whether or not you want to lock that amount of money in a running back. And Zeke, since he entered the league in 2016 with Dak, it's also been leaning on your running back. So I agree with you. I'm sure Jason Garrett is saying the same thing. Protect Daniel Jones with Saquon Barkley. I'll give you one more thing to throw on that fire. If you know that you've got a bunch of teams like the ones we've mentioned who are expected to have a very strong, powerful, impotent rushing attack, what you want to do is make sure that your special teams tilts the field and gains really good field position for your defense so that you put those other offenses in a position where maybe they feel, you know what, we do have to throw the ball down the field a little bit. We can't just necessarily try to punch it out with the run because the Giants have a formidable defensive front against a ground attack. And again, putting more pressure on some of these quarterbacks deep in their own territory where they may feel more uncomfortable. Well, and that's why we've also talked about the evolution of the Giants' special teams over the last few seasons, and even in an offseason when you lose Michael Thomas, who is a very valuable component, special teams captain, he goes over to the Houston Texans. You bring in Nate Ebner, who has familiarity with Joe Judge. You still have Cody Core. So those guys could very well, once again, take pressure off of the defense by making the opposition have to put together 80 to 90-yard drives. I remember the one play that stands out to me from last season, Paul, is when the Giants were playing the Cardinals and Marcus Golden made a tremendous play to sack Kyler Murray, if you remember. It was one of those relentless Marcus Mm -hmm. Golden type of plays where Murray was running left and right and Golden finally chased him down. And then on the very next play... They're backed up all the way into the end zone. Arizona's got a punt, and the Giants special teams comes through with Michael Thomas, and they recover the ball in the end zone. So, you know, that's an example of how you have complementary football. We talk about that all the time. Let's see that really come to the forefront, and maybe that's something that the Giants are going to benefit from in terms of Joe Judge and his special teams philosophy and background that they're going to look for ways to strengthen the defense and the offense by leaning on a facet that I always feel in any NFL conversation, you know, people never spend enough time talking about special teams because a lot of these guys, they do the dirty work, Paul. It doesn't show up statistically in the box score. You really have to pay close attention, but there are so many valuable players and New England is a team that is the poster child of this because Matthew Slater, who is somebody that they've invested a great deal of money in over the years, Bill Belichick and Joe Judge will be the first guys to tell you one of the most valuable players on their roster. Yes, it's Tom Brady and all those other guys, but it's also Matthew Slater. And they value that. And there's no reason why Joe Judge can't try to turn to that degree with respect to this Giants roster. I don't think there is any question that Joe Judge uh, is going to put a significant, with a capital S, 
emphasis on special teams. We've talked to Jeff Fiegels on this program many times over the last few months, and it is our belief that Joe Judge actually intends on having the number one rated special teams unit in the league. He believes that every single weekend his special teams should be a winner and that if you've already got that part of the game won, well, now you just have to win one of the other two parts. That gives you two-thirds command, which is going to give you a very solid shot at winning the ball game. Lance Meadow, Paul Dottino with you here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Thanks so much for tuning in. Going over what the Giants can expect this season in terms of some of the matchups as we've knocked out another opponent preview. Now let's turn to some NFL news or football news, I should say, Paul, before we answer some of the submitted questions. And probably the latest development in the football world is what happened on the college football landscape on Thursday. And that is the fact that the Big Ten, this is now the first time we're seeing a power conference come out and make some tweaks to the schedule where the Big Ten announced that it is only going to have conference play in football this season. They are canceling non-conference games, which are always those games that benefit some of those smaller teams because they usually pay those teams to travel to their houses. So there's certainly economic ramifications with respect to that. That can take up an entire conversation on another program and another platform. But from just the schedule standpoint, Gene Smith, who is one of the Big Ten athletic directors... He is the athletic director for Ohio State. When he met with reporters on Thursday, he once said he was cautiously optimistic about a college football season this fall. And now he said the following phrase, quote, I'm really concerned when you look at the behavior of our country. And in May, we were on a downward trajectory. Now, if we are not the worst in the world, we are one of the worst countries in the world, end quote. Now, once again, Paul, we're not bringing this up to lay out a doomsday picture for the NFL because I've always said this, college football, hundreds of schools across the country, the NFL, only 32 teams. But It's a different game. It really it is. It is. a much different logistical game. situation. Absolutely. No doubt about it. But the reason why I do think it's relevant to bring up what the Big Ten is doing and what the outlook is for college football is they're still dealing and contending with the same virus, Paul, in all fairness, that the NFL has to contend with. So from that standpoint, I think it is relevant to bring up that clearly we've been talking about everything evolves day in and day out, week in and week out, where college football is now dealing with this evolution process. Well, I'm just looking at something that Dan Wetzel, a sports columnist with Yahoo, uh, also put out uh, on Thursday night, and he says that the Pac-12 and ACC will reportedly soon follow with the same announcement that the Big Ten made, and he said, you know what, you can expect just about everybody else to do the same thing. Uh, I continue to hear the the small rumblings, and I know it's probably the, quote, Hail Mary scenario, but, you know, there are a bunch of people in the NCAA who have whispered about maybe they should just postpone the entire season until January, and we know that they've apparently reportedly had conversation with the NFL and said, well, what are you going to do with the draft if we move our season to January? Could you move it back? And the NFL reportedly said, no, we're not going to move it back. So that's interesting, and why is it interesting at all to maybe Giants fans? Well, Giants fans who want to figure out when's the best time for their team and and their league to play, well, think about this for a second. Uh, If the NFL and the NCAA, or at least some of the major conferences, decide that they're going to move all their games to January? I mean, college hoop, right? NCAA football, NFL football, uh, NHL hockey, and NBA basketball. The the glut uh, (laughs) that we're going to have, and I'm going to be honest with you, Lance, I'm not sure that despite all the sports channels and networks that we have available on our satellite dishes and our cable TV and our streaming services, I'm not exactly sure how they would handle all of that at once. Well, I would say from their standpoint, that's a good problem to have. I don't think they'd be complaining (laughs) with the bulk of content that you're talking about. Here's the only issue I find with that, and I would have no problem if they decided to try to move it to the spring or, as you mentioned, after January begins. It's just you still don't have a crystal ball, Paul, in terms of what the status of the country is going to be like. Is there going to be a vaccine? Nobody knows. So whether you push it back or you have it now or you attempt to hold it now, 
there's still a chance that there could be interruption. I don't think there's an ideal game plan no matter what, but I would think maybe for the sake of consistency and continuity and the chance of maybe salvaging some of these non-conference games, yeah, it would make sense to move fall sports to the spring. I mean, clearly the Ivy League has already done that, and people were saying, oh, well, you know, it's a little bit different from a financial standpoint. And I get that, but my response to everybody who says that is, once again, Paul, this virus does not discriminate against one conference versus the other. I I think people need to understand that. The virus is not going anywhere. So if it affects the Ivy League, it's going to affect the Big Ten. It's going to affect the Big 12. It's going to affect the ACC. One conference doesn't say, oh, we're immune from this all so we could play our season in the fall and then they can move it to the spring. Everybody's dealing with it. So when you see one conference already make that move and as you just announced, yeah, I'm not surprised that it becomes a game of follow the leader. Remember, it was... One conference that said college basketball's postseason tournament is done. And then what happened after that, Paul? It was a domino effect, right? Mm -hmm. Everybody else followed. So we're seeing the same exact thing take place now with respect to college football. No, you're absolutely right, Lance. And again, I do believe that the NCAA game is different than the NFL situation because you're talking about many more players with college. You're talking about, you know, kids on campus, which is a totally different thing as well. Yep. And and to be honest with you, okay, not only do you have the 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 amount of players, but you also have, let's face it, the college athletes are a few years younger than even the NFL athletes. So any wariness or or concern that you have about even the NFL guys saying, well, how mature are they going to be to follow directions? Well, how mature do you think a college athlete's going to be to follow directions? Well, I think that's an extremely valid point, especially at that time in that age group. You want to socialize in addition, right, to what you do on the athletic playing and services. And you also believe that yeah. you're Superman. Of course. It's not going to get me. You think you're invincible. That's a very valid point. There's no doubt about it. And I don't want to get completely off topic, but anyway. I think also another layer to this in terms of the difference is the liability factor, as you pointed out. When you're talking about student athletes, okay, and student, the key operating phrase in terms of the academic side of things and parents and sending their children off to campuses, you also need to think about who you're in charge of. You're not in charge of the well-being of one or two individuals. You're talking about a huge student body, which within the student body has a facet of athletes. And I'm not saying that the NFL doesn't care about the well-being of their athletes. Don't get me wrong and don't misinterpret that, Paul, but it's a different wavelength when you're talking about these are paid professionals, meaning they're coming to work every day, just like anybody else, right? You go to work and they need you to come back. You run the risk, right? You're still dealing Mm -hmm. with the virus. A little bit different when you're a student athlete and you're there from a learning perspective and the athletic standpoint, even though there's a lot of money involved, it's still considered an activity and not necessarily a profession. The waters continue to be muddy. Yes. So that's more of a reason why we're bringing up what's going on in college football. But if people want to then make the assumption, oh, well, if college football is dealing with this, then how's the NFL going to move on? Very different in terms of the two platforms. Yeah, Yeah. it it really is. I mean, uh, they're both from the same family because they're both football. But there are so many different logistical things that, that will alter the course of approach. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Before we wrap up, let's try to answer some submitted questions. And a reminder, all of the programs this week have been taped, so we are not taking phone calls. And we do appreciate you for continuing to interact with us by submitting your questions. Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. You can also send them directly to us on social media, on Twitter, at Lance Meadow. One word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. First question comes from Chris in Tennessee. He asks the following, which side of the ball do you think will become more acclimated first to what the new coaches will ask of them? Well, it's got to be the offense because, you know, we're, we're looking at what the Giants are bringing back this year, and there is more continuity, first of all, on offense, so the players are more familiar with each other. So that will make it easier just from the very get-go because they don't just have to get used to their coaches on defense. They've also got to get used to each other with all the changes that, that are being made. But then the other thing is, too, I believe that we already know, okay, that the Giants' offense 
has um, I don't I don't know if the phrase is enough talent, but we know that the Giants have a a formidable offense, and they don't necessarily have to do extra kinds of schematic things to help overcome some of their deficiencies. And that's what's going to have to happen on the other side of the ball. I think we all realize that Patrick Graham is going to have to be very creative, and he's going to really have to tinker with things on a weekly basis, maybe even every quarter, to try to help max out the effectiveness of his unit. So I I don't think there's much question here. I think it's pretty obvious. Yeah, I would agree with you. If you look at the offensive personnel right now, we're talking about Paul, a new right tackle, maybe a change at center. Outside of that, you're bringing back your tight ends, you're bringing back your running back, your quarterback's entering year two, the receiving core, your top three guys are pretty much back in the mix. Okay, you add maybe Corey Coleman or somebody like that who didn't play last season because of injury. I don't think that's a huge hurdle that would throw a wrench into the offense. Then you flip over to the defense, as you alluded to, and not only are you talking about a new scheme, with a completely new philosophy, but you're also incorporating some new faces who also did not have a lot of time on the field together. Because when you think about the secondary, Paul, Julian Love didn't become an integral part of the defense until the latter part of the year, right? Mm -hmm. He really wasn't much of a factor at all in the early stages. Ballantyne, too, in and out of the lineup. So Sam Beal would be another player. McKinney now, you're entering into the equation at safety. If Darnay Holmes wins the slot job, okay, that's a brand new face. James Bradbury was not here at all last season. Ryan Connolly coming back for the torn ACL. He only played four games. Blake Martinez is new. Yes, your front group, you could say there's some familiarity, but Paul, every other layer behind the front is completely new and at the same time digesting a scheme. So to me, it's apples and oranges in terms of what you're working with on defense versus what you're working with on offense. Mm -hmm. No question. Let's go to question number two, and this one comes from Samuel in Vermont, and this is somewhat related to the offensive side of the ball. With our improved Vasily, in his opinion, he writes, offensive line and returning players for the offensive skill positions, do you see the Giants putting up 30-plus points a game this season? Hmm. I'll be honest with you, Lance. I, I think if the Giants put up 28 a game, that would probably be not only reasonable, but that would be a welcome number. I, I, I think that if they can get 28 points a game, I think they will be very competitive with their one-loss record. I mean, look, 31, I think that's probably asking too much. Uh, And quite honestly, the other thing is, too, your defense is going to have to stop some people to get the offense back on the field. And I I think, you know, you're you're giving the defense too much credit if you think that the offense is going to score 31 points because the Giants are not a quick strike attack. They've got people on offense who can get things done, but they're not the kind of offense that's going to score three touchdowns in in seven and a half minutes you know that's not what they've got it's more of a methodical offense and we know that jason garrett is going to rely more heavily on the run game as well so i'm i'm going to say 31 is is too high of a number they're they're not going to come in that high well to put things in perspective last season and i'm not saying that every season relates to one another because i would disagree with that sentiment but just to put things once again in a big picture perspective they averaged just over 21 a game last season i think it was 21.3 to be exact so if you're expecting them to average about 31 points a game then that means you're telling me the giants are going to score an additional touchdown and at least a field goal every single game this season more so than they did last year. That, to me, is a very, very significant jump ball for an offense also that, yes, preaches continuity, but also is learning a new scheme and still has a relatively young quarterback. So I think that's asking for too much. Now, you threw out 28. If you're going to tell me they're going to increase their scoring average by a touchdown, I think every team would sign up for that without any hesitation because if you improve by a touchdown from one season to another— which to me is no easy task, by the way, that is a welcomed opportunity. And I think that may be pressing it a little too much. I I would aim more for a five to six point improvement. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I I agree. When I when I said twenty eight, I was only trying to take him down from his thirty one. Well, and I wasn't <laughs> saying that you were out of whack for saying that, Paul. I'm just once again saying that if they do improve by a touchdown, any coach will tell you, I'll sign up for that without hesitation. Look at it this way: uh, since the the twenty ten season, uh, the Giants have only put up more than four hundred points twice in a campaign. And by doing so, you're talking about the 26 to 27 point per game uh, rate. So, you know, it's it's not unthinkable that a Giants offense could score in the high 20s by the end of the season. But you know, the truth of the matter is, uh, they're not they're not the Chiefs. You know, they're not super 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 dynamic where you could see them re- reaching for 30. I I just think that's a little too much. And there were multiple games last season where they failed to even score 20 points. And here's the sure. other thing. Here's the other thing that I think we have to discuss before we wrap up which is connected directly to Samuel's question. The turnovers. Because Paul, mm-hmm. you talked about what I like to say is at bats. And I know it's a baseball term, but when you said your defense has to give your offense opportunities, I think of it bats. I want to get my offense up at the plate, right? Okay, so that to me goes hand in hand with scoring opportunities. Well, the Giants had 33 turnovers last season, okay? So just think about it. You turn the ball over 33 times in 16 games. That's over two a game. Paul, think about all the lost scoring opportunities from those 33 turnovers. Now, are they going to go from 33 to 5? Let's be realistic. Everyone turns the ball over. If they could cut that number by a third, I would say that would be a step in the direction. And then you take all of those opportunities back, and that's also a way that you manufacture more points. But that's going to be a tell-all sign for the Giants this season. And I actually would argue it's the one offensive statistic that I would put at the top of the list that has to drastically improve, where you have to cut down on that number, which was 33. There's a reason why the Giants were minus 17 in turnover differential, which was tied with the Chargers for the worst mark in the NFL. And the Chargers, by the way, won five games. The Giants won four. So don't tell me that it's not synonymous with winning and losing. It's absolutely synonymous, Paul. So Mm -hmm. if anybody was to ask me, well, how did the Giants score more points? We could sit here all day, Paul, and you could tell me the offensive line is going to improve. Barkley's going to get X amount of carries. Daniel Jones is going to throw it down the field. And I will say, well, tell me how the Giants protect the football. That's going to be my number one answer when you look at what the Giants do from an offensive standpoint. Well, you know what's interesting, Lance? You know, you talk about it in terms of at-bats. I'm going to give you some flat-out numbers. The Giants averaged just over 63 offensive snaps per game last season, which was good enough for 18th in the league. Okay, just a little bit under the middle of the pack. Yet, ironically, they were right there tied with the Green Bay Packers, ahead of the Saints by a snap a game, ahead of San Francisco by a snap a game. And oh yeah, by the way, they had nearly two snaps a game on offense, more than the Kansas City Chiefs. So it's it's kind of it's kind of interesting in that despite their horrible turnover ratio and they had a lot of trouble giving the ball away, snap count wise, they really weren't killing themselves or, or shooting themselves in the foot. Now again, this goes to what I said to you before. The Giants have a very talented offense. I would not necessarily call them overly explosive, because in my mind. The only guy on offense who could score from anywhere on the field really is Saquon Barkley. I like Golden Tate. I like Sterling Shepard. You know, I like Evan Ingram. Those are good players. They can make big plays for you. But I don't necessarily look at those guys as a potential touchdown every time they touch the ball. Well, and that's why it's interesting to hear the three teams that you threw out in comparison in terms of snaps, because I would argue that's the difference, Paul. Kansas City explosive, San Francisco explosive, Green Bay too, maybe to a slightly lesser degree. And I would actually And New Orleans. And New Orleans too. I would be more interested actually, Paul, and this is just my personal opinion. I would like to see possessions. I don't have that number in front of me. Maybe we could bring this up on a future show versus snap count. And here's why. You can have Kansas City 
it takes them two plays to score. You know, Patrick Mahomes throws a 50-yard bomb to Tyree Kill touchdown, whereas the Giants may need 12 plays to do the equivalency of what the Chiefs did. So I'd actually be more interested to see the differentiation in possessions for an offense over the course of the season, meaning drives instead of snaps, because snaps, I think, could be a bit misleading, Paul, because the Giants could have been equivalent to the Chiefs, mainly because Kansas City had big bang plays, where they had drives, one, two plays, and that's it. Whereas the Giants, it took them a more methodical approach to get up and down the field, and that's how all of a sudden the snap counts are relatively equal. Interestingly enough, uh, the Giants actually, with 182 offensive drives last year, were actually fourth most in the NFL. Interesting. That is a very interesting number. But once again, that to me, I want to hear. Now, do you have the rest of the NFL, just out of curiosity, yes, in front the, of you? The average, the average number of offensive drives last season was 173 for the course of the year. And again, the Giants at 182. So they, they were, were well fourth. over the average. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Just another number to you know throw out there just to uh, provide context. And that may be then the factor if we see that they're up there in possessions and middle of the pack for the most part in snaps, it's about then capitalizing on the at-bats. So well, it's having substance, Paul, behind those possessions and at-bats. You need more substance, and that's where they were lacking last and season. And average it out over the course of a season. If the average NFL team last year had 173 possessions, you're talking about just about 11 opportunities to uh, put your offense on the field and have your quarterback attempt to get some points for you. So two very interesting questions. We appreciate the submissions. Always allows for some nice back and forth. And you can continue to send in your questions. Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions or directly to us on Twitter at Lance Meadow. One word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants W-F-A-N. So that is going to wrap up Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. We will be back up and running again starting on Monday live at noon Eastern every day with an opportunity to interact with you over the phones. So make sure you mark your calendars. Monday, back up and running at noon Eastern, but we certainly appreciate everybody for tuning in on a consistent basis, specifically this week as we continued our opponent team previews. Paul, always a pleasure going back and forth. Look forward to speaking to you next week. Good stuff today, Lance. Uh, Enjoy your weekend. Absolutely. We hope all of our listeners enjoy their weekend as you try to get your mind off of what's going on in the country and look forward to what hopefully will be inching closer to the start of training camp later this month. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy your weekend. Enjoy the rest of your Friday and always stay locked to Giants.com. Have a good one.